Well, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> boy, I tell you, you start getting older, and it, I feel kind of like one of those shooting stars that are just kind of going across the sky, and you, you just, it, life just kind of goes before you. Uh, my youngest turned 29 this year. My oldest daughter now is 34, and uh, life is just kind of flowing by. I turned 65 in October. A week after I turned 65, I had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. And so uh, I can see my life. It's literally flashing before me. And uh, last year, I know, uh, when I was here before, some of you remember, I was hobbling around, couldn't get around at all. I was hurting and um, <clears throat> had bad arthritis. Got it in my hands now, but then I had it in my hips. And so I had both hips replaced. It's one of those uh, examples where when you get older, your body begins to, of course, fall apart and everything. But you know, my body is worth more now than it was before I had my hips replaced. <laughs> I told my wife, if something happens to me, you be sure to claim those titanium hips before <laughs> you put me in the ground. <laughs> it says, I mean, those things are expensive, but that's what I've got, and I feel just much, much, much better. And uh, fortunately, the heart attack I had didn't damage my heart. Uh, it just woke me up. And so the doctor, just before I left, I have a regular visit with my cardiologist, and uh, I give uh, three uh, trips to families this summer to Yellowstone. So we do a lot of walking, and also we have a dinosaur dig this summer. And uh, he has cleared me to climb one of my lifelong goals, which has been to climb Mount Washburn in in Yellowstone Park. Now, those I know you guys have got this select group called the 14ers. Is that right? Is that what that's called? And I know it's this passage into manhood. Is that, is that right? <laughs> Uh, that's why I don't come here more often, because I would never make it. I'm still trying to get to 10,000. <laughs> that's what Mount Washburn is. So hopefully I'll do that this summer. Uh, but anyway, yes, as Greg mentioned, uh, more and more I'm developing, uh, especially in ministry to families and children. It's very interesting. I didn't expect this, but I gave six talks this, uh, this past weekend. And I would say about 25% of my audience were were teens and young kids. And that's kind of what it's working out. I'm getting contact with hundreds of kids every year. I now have a museum in the Linwood, Washington area. We get lots and lots of classes there and tours and, uh, uh, you know, 25, 30 kids at a time. And uh, we had also a group of Muslims there this past year. And uh, that was just a tremendous time. In fact, uh, occasionally they'll invite me to come speak in their mosque. Isn't that interesting? Never thought I'd get a chance to to do that. And uh, getting older, you know, this uh, idea of going to Saudi Arabia just kind of drifting drifting away. But it's kind of like the sands are coming to me. <laughs> and so every once in a while I get the opportunity to go in. They always call me when they do their rock uh, sections in their books and things. So here I am in a mosque. And um, amazing thing, I of course they have all different persuasions of Muslims in their, their mosque, and some of them are uh, women who wear the burqas, you know, fully uh, fully shrouded, but I end up having conversations with these women. They're asking questions, they're, and I'm just sitting 
there amazed that here we've got a man, a Christian no less, who's talking with a Muslim woman. And it just, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. And I thought, boy, there's, there's a lot to this rock stuff, isn't there? <laughs> it's not just cluttering up the house. It's, it's paving the way for uh, spiritual things. And so that's really kind of what my life is really going, the direction it's really going in. And I'm getting a lot more opportunities. Last few years I've had the... Uh, I don't know what it is. I, you know, I didn't like writing a long time ago. I just, it took me about three years to write my first book. It was that. I mean, it's like pulling teeth. In the last couple of years, I don't know, somehow the energy is there. I've got 19 textbooks done now. And uh, about another six in the oven. And I want to be careful. My wife does the editing, so I'm going to kill her if I hand these over and say, okay, get them done. I need them done next week, you know. So. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you can take a look at them out on the, the, the table there. And they're all designed just to help kids and families understand this this um, totally complicating issue it seems like in, in geology the history of the earth and what's happening it seems like a very intimidating subject. Uh, you've got all of this stuff up here that's, and we can't, we kind of look at these guys up here and it just, boy, they're so far above us. And, but there's nothing in between to help translate it down to where uh, you and, you know, and I can understand it. I was influenced by a, uh, a commentator years ago. His name is Barnhouse. He wrote a commentary on Romans. And uh, he used to tell his students, you got to get the hay out of the loft and onto the ground where the cows can get at it. And that has really affected how I strive to write and communicate is if it's not simple, if it's not clear, if people can't pick it up in a sentence or two, it's not clear enough. And so that's kind of been my aim to do that. Um, So, and as Greg said too, a lot of what I've been influenced by is going to find its outworking in here too. I must apologize though. You guys, some of you guys are asking me questions when I came in. Geology type questions and I didn't bring any pictures with me (laughs) so I don't have any geology pictures this time but um I do have a message I would like to um, uh, to communicate with you all this morning. It's very much on my heart, and it, it's very much the vein of what I try to communicate with families. And I know that in our culture, our culture is just spinning out of control. Uh, and some of us have uh, the vantage of having lived a little longer than the rest of you, and we can see those changes. It's not they've it, years ago they used to be very gradual and it just seems like in the last 20 years the changes have been clicked off and you could just see them changing rapidly and our culture is just heading in uh, toward that direct changing not for the good uh, but for the uh, for the worst and the the people who are going to get it and I think really have it piled on them are our kids. The next 10 years is going to be very telling. Uh, years ago when I was involved in the 70s with creation evolution stuff, um, professors used to tell their students, don't pay any attention to them. They're like little gnats. They'll go away one of these days. Today, they are much more militant. And they're out to destroy people who believe this stuff. There are paleontologists that I know of who are lobbying 
to prevent students who want to get a degree in some kind of geology or geological, uh, you know, uh, whether it's oil, searching for oil, or what's paleontology, if you believe this stuff, not to grant you a degree, a science degree. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they're just getting very, very militant about it. And so I think there's a real need that we've got to somehow take these Bible stories that we've been learning in the Old Testament, and somehow we've got to make them real to ourselves and to our kids so they can take these stories and see the connection to the earth around them. And I think that's the big gap, especially for us who are trying to homeschool our kids. We're getting, we're getting lots of good books. We still don't know how to take what we're learning here and translate it to what we see all around us. And so we have questions over here. We take it to the secularists, and they'll explain it to us, but in a totally different time frame. So uh, kind of ride with me this morning and... <clears throat> We'll talk about defenders of the faith. By the way, do you all see yourselves as defenders of the faith? Do you see that? Do you, do you see your children as coming up now to be defenders of the faith? That's who we are. This passage here says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense or to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And um, uh, what we usually do when we think of defense or defending, we think of defending from attack, we think think of defending one's honor or integrity, and we think of defending God's honor. And I think it all involves all of that, but these are primarily what I call defensive moves. We, we, we kind of get into a reactive mode. And what we do need to do is get into a, a mode where we're attacking in a good way. Well, how do we do that? Jude, the very first part of Jude says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. I think it's interesting that he right away in his letter puts believers in uh, in a light that they should see themselves. There there's three descriptive words here that really tell us who we are and what we're doing here on earth. He says to those that are the called. Those are the ones that are set aside for a service, a very special service. Appointed ones. That's what the word means. Appointed ones. And I think it's good we just say, look, this is not us. The older I get, I just see myself as more and more inadequate. You would think after 40 years of pastoring, I'd have some answers. I don't. And the longer I live, I feel like I've got less answers to life. Maybe it's because it just keeps changing on me every week. And what I thought was, oh, this will work, and oh, no, it won't. You know, so i got to go back to the drawing board. And I just feel like I'm doing that constantly. But it doesn't change my position in Christ. I am the called. And this is, if we can somehow infuse this in ourselves and in our kids, it's, it's going to help when I get to the next part. Uh, He says to those that are the beloved in God. Now, this is not just, oh, God loves me. (laughs) We all know that. We sing it and we espouse it. But it's also ones that have a very special place in God's thinking. 
He saved us and not just chalked it up and put a notch on his Bible up there, but he has... He's given us a very special place uh, to those that are the kept for Jesus Christ. Um, I struggled with this early on in my Christian life. Boy, who keeps, you know, I believe and I believe God saved me, but who keeps me? Do I have to do something extra? Well, it says the kept. God is doing that. He's keeping me. And, and uh, I'm responding. But he's keeping me. And there are a lot of blind spots out there. My goodness. After all these years of life, I can, I can, I can tell you, you know, I, I appreciate my parents more and more because one of the things that they did as they walked on before me, they weren't believers, but as they walked on before me, they stepped on a lot of minds. And uh, it's part of parenting, isn't it? And you're going to step on a lot of minds. I have stepped on a lot of minds, so to speak. And so what we do is we turn around to our kids and say, listen to me, I've stepped on a few minds here. I can tell you where the minds are. And that's what I think the idea to me and kept. God's kind of showing us where the minds are. And if we just pay attention, we listen to him, he'll, he'll, he'll get us out of some of the places where we could possibly lose a leg. You know what I mean? In this spiritual life. Kept for Jesus Christ. All the work that God has done to you and for you has prepared you for something. It's prepared you for something. It's not just this position, this glorified position, now we're waiting till heaven. But he's prepared me for something. We have entered into God's service as soldiers, ambassadors, witnesses, sons, believers in the true God. And you know this. I mean, you could probably add a few of these titles. This is all true of us as believers. But here's the big question. For what? For what has he prepared me? For what am I a witness? For what am I an ambassador here? And I know you know the, the answer. You know that I'm prepared for the gospel. I'm in the gospel. But what does that mean? And what does that uh, involve? And what does that require? Jude goes on in that same chapter. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation... Now look here, he's going he's gonna to switch topics a little bit. This is what he started out to. This is what he had in mind when he wrote the letter. Then he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's another one you can add to the list. We are one of the saints. It means a sanctified one, one who's set apart, again, for some kind of a purpose. Well, I want to look at this just a little bit closer. He says, contend earnestly for the faith. Contending earnestly for the faith. What does it mean? It means agonizing in the ring for clarity and conviction involved in the struggle for faith. This is such a hard job. You can't just go around in a vehicle. Like the, how many of you were, in the, were kids in the 50s? Any of you out there? A few of you. Do you remember some, if you lived in a small town, the way the town would get messages to the community was they had this, this old, it wasn't for us, it was this old army vehicle. And it had these loudspeakers on top. And they'd go down every street in the community announcing their message. 
And so I have, okay, why don't we just do that with the gospel? You know, if it's just hearing the gospel and, and, and kind of reminding people that it's there and they hear it and they're going to get, they're going to get saved. And, uh, it, we do this, this vehicle marches around. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This vehicle goes up and down the streets and so on. But that's, it's not just, saying the message that's involved in faith and in belief, it is actually clarity, bringing clarity and conviction to this whole agonizing struggle to not only believe yourself but it's also to help others believe he says contending earnestly for the faith, it's the word we get epistemology one of those big fancy words. It means the study of belief and all it stands for. So this is part of our mission. We're here to help clarify the issues. We're here to clarify the message of God and help bring people to conviction. Now, yes, it's the Holy Spirit that reaches in and touches the heart. But guess what? What do you think he did all that work for us and in us? It's so we can be involved right along with him. And this is going to, it's going to necessitate that you and I work very hard to try to make the issues clear and help them believe. That's what we're here for. One of the things that's really helped me, and not only in my ministry outside of my life, but also when I get around my fellow believers, whether it's in Seattle or here or any place else, one of the habits I've developed is just to ask God before I go, God, help me build the faith of those that I'll be around. Just a very simple prayer. Meanwhile, I know that all of us struggle in the morning. I don't like to get up in the morning. I've got other things I want to do. And so, and a lot of times going to church is a, it's an obligation. And I'm just looking at it in the wrong way. Why don't I just try praying? You know, I'm not going there for myself today. I'm going there for the faith of others. And God help me know how to build the faith of others. Maybe maybe one or two, but this is part of the agony that we go through. We struggle. It's like being in the ring and boxing and taking hits. I don't know how to build the faith of others, and yet that's our mission. That's our goal, and we got to work at it. Let me tell you, the toughest thing in life is trusting or believing the God of the Bible. That is not easy. And the older you get, it seems like it's much more of a struggle. It has been for me. Because there are all kinds of things. Now, it's not just, it's not the basic truth. We, we get that when we get saved and it becomes clear to us, oh, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. That's never changed since I became a believer in um, 1972. But what has changed is this gigantic struggle. I feel like I'm in the ring wrestling with something that's much stronger than I am. And I've got to be victorious in this. So the faith, he says, the faith delivered the faith once for all. Uh, once for all delivered the, the, to the called, the beloved, the kept. I don't know about you, but when I think of that self, I have to kind of pinch myself, you know. Okay, this is something. God has entrusted this very special thing. The, he, it's the only way for salvation is belief in this God and, and his son. It's the only way 
we're going to get to heaven. And you start realizing that. And boy, the weight of that message. And it, it doesn't mean that people are going to go to hell because of you. God will use others. But it does mean that I'm involved in this, this, this mission to help bring clarity to God's message. It's part of what he's entrusted to me. And so I'll tell you, I take it seriously and I just have to work hard and making sure I'm keeping up with how to do this. The message of truth, what it means to believe in God, that's been entrusted to us. Nothing else is more important in life than how we take this message and work hard at understanding how to, to respond to the changing culture around us. It's, it is a struggle. So, switching gears here just a bit, you and I know that although God's truth doesn't change, the culture is just changing so rapidly around us, sometimes it's tempting to think that, well, perhaps maybe we ought to change the message so it's a little more appealing to this changing culture. And um, the church has struggled with this ever since the first century. In the first century, there were pernicious ideas that were beginning to surface in the church. And one that began to surface and raises its head again and again and again. And you can see how the, the apostles dealt with it in some of their writings. And that was this, Gnosticism. Now, that's a strange word to all of us. We don't even speak that way today. Only the theology students speak that way. You know, that's something you learn in, in, uh, in seminary. You know, you don't, you don't speak that way. We don't even use that word anymore. And it means knowledge. And that began to raise its ugly head in the first century. And by the way, that word Gnosticism is the same word, Gnosis, for the knowledge of God. What do you think the devil is trying to do? He's trying to copy it. Change it just a bit, but copy it. So it makes it harder to believe. And uh, it's really what it means is enlightenment through a special body of facts and knowledge and people. One of the big victories for Satan, I'm convinced, was in the 17 and 1800s during this period called the Enlightenment. What a what a huge lie enlightenment we need to call it the endarkenment because what happened it was another garden event and this lie crept in uh, and today we, we think it was uh, uh, scientific advances that led these people to draw different conclusions and it's forced us to look at our scriptures and say well maybe we ought to think about those scriptures a little differently because these brilliant men have, uh, have worked some things out scientifically that is such a lie. That is not what happened. There was a huge philosophical shift in the 17 and 1800s. An overthrow of God, if you will. And it so affected the church that by the end of the 1800s, there wasn't one person of note that stood out and sounded the trumpet that, look, no, that is wrong. And here's why it is. I know there were several who maintained it. 
and did a pretty good job. But right and left, the church leaders throughout the 1800s and into the 20th century compromised the Word of God. And it left it just a very difficult position. The number one divider in the church today is a geological question. How old is the earth? That divides more churches than anything else. Why should that be an issue? It's so clear in the scriptures, and I think it's because our faith needs to somehow wrap around what God has communicated and understand it. Paul says this, So Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And there's that word gnosis. The knowledge of God is gnosis. But the devil is right there making a, a duplicate copy, but changing it just a little bit. Now, one of the changes that he's made and I believe I talk this way because I believe that's what's gone on we don't use that word Gnostic anymore or Gnosis we do use the word knowledge but do you know how it's translated today all that's been done is shift the word from Greek Gnosis to Latin science science is from a Latin word meaning to know Isn't that interesting? Just shifted gears a bit. We're still back here trying to figure out what Gnosticism means. (laughs) Meanwhile, culture has shifted away from Gnosticism, and now we've got scientism. And what it is, is simply this. It's enlightenment through a special body of facts and knowledge revealed by men and women who embrace views shared by an enlightened group of qualified people. That's what it is. Now, not everything in science is that way, obviously. But what's happened to us is that science has kind of been mixed with not only facts, but also opinions of these men who have long ago rejected what God has to say. Some of them are good believers. Majority of them, to some degree or another, reject the historicity of the Bible. And that's really put a strain on us. Because who are we? I don't know anybody in here that's got a doctorate in physics. Anybody in here got a doctorate in physics? A doctorate in chemistry. Anybody a doctorate in chem- A doctorate in astronomy. A doctorate in geology. Well, who are you to talk about creation then? You see what I mean? And it intimidates us. But we're the called, we're the beloved, we're the chosen, and God has entrusted his message to us. That's our authority to speak on this stuff. Now, what... Uh, has happened here is this has pushed us a little bit and this is why we must make a defense for the faith it's getting trampled on by a false knowledge science has made an assault on the truth of our origin and the consequences for sin the flood the flood is the most attacked thing in the bible uh, by the secular community it started that way in the late 1700s One of the goals of Charles Lyell, who really drove geology in the 1830s, his personal goal was to eliminate any reference of Genesis when studying geology. That was his personal goal. And I would say he was very, very successful at it. 
it here. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So let's talk about defense here. Of course, it's the word apologia. It's the word we get apologetics from. It means giving a reason for belief and also confronting error. Both of those are involved in the idea of apologetics. Sometimes I think we have this concept of apologetics as mastering a whole bunch of facts so we confound the enemy with our facts and our evidence. It doesn't do anything. It only makes a matter. What we've got to do is figure out how to give a reason such that it begins to connect and to confront the error. Not with real doubts. Well, I don't know. You know, scientists tell me the earth is 4.6 billion years old and God's word said 6,000 years old. I mean, boy, that's, don't you feel a little bit ridiculous? And uh, I was giving a talk one time in, in Minnesota. And it was a huge crowd of, and these guys, I mean, boy, you talk about feeling small. Most of these guys out here were retired engineers, physicists, chemists, and so on. And uh, so here I am giving, <laughs> giving this talk on geology <laughs> to these guys. <laughs> you talk about feeling like a, a, a boy communicating to all these grandfathers, you know. It, that was a tough one. Anyway, this one guy. One guy told me before I got started, he said, pay attention to this guy right out here. He's the traveling atheist. He shows up at all of this stuff. You know, so I did, and I sparred with him a little bit, and we we discovered one common ground, and we I think we got a good friendship going. It was, he loves Yellowstone. He was a ranger there. Of course, I love Yellowstone, too. And, uh, in fact, one of the books I've written on there is the geology of Yellowstone from a biblical view. But anyway, during this talk... Right in the middle of it, he just stands up and he says, you are an absolute loony. <laughs> and so I figure, okay, there's my baptism. Let's move on. <laughs> so I can join the ranks. Every believer is really to be involved in this. Now, how do you do it? All, all of us are trying to make a living. We're trying to support our family, trying to help our kids. Who has time to read all the books? I'm just going to give you three things today that I think will help you. Three things we must know and understand to make a defense for God's revelation, truth, and faith. And by the way, you can you don't have to do double duty here. Get your kids together too. You can work on this together. And that is this. In fact, this these three things, this these are the most uh, I would say the most difficult things I have in working with families. Uh, and that is this. First one, we must know the differences in science history and philosophy those three words that's kind of simple it's not very impressive is it we've got to know the differences here we don't know the differences the secular community teaches us there's science and about 80 percent of it is philosophy they combine earth history with earth science earth history is not science why is that because science is that which is observable, testable, and repeatable. It's limited in its ability to explain reality. And we don't see that. The scientist who gave us Bayer Aspirin also tells us that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. How are we to know the difference? You know, these guys are professionals. One is science and one isn't, really? Well, all you need to do is practice and have your kids practice. That statement that you just heard, what part of it is science? What part of it is genuinely science? What part of it is testable, observable, and repeatable? 
If it isn't, it's not science. And most scientists don't aren't aware of this. They don't practice this. But we have to be faithful to reality out there. And so we have to remind. This is a part of confronting. And I'll do this all the time. What part of what you just said is science? Somebody said, you know what? It's been proven that evolution is true. And I'll just say, you know, rather than trying to defend it, I'll just say, well, can you tell me what parts of evolution are actually science? Well, I can't really list them right now, but, but it's all true. It's all... No, just tell me, what part is genuinely science? And that's, I think, what we've got to do by being on the offensive. Second of all, history. History is our documents from eyewitnesses, one-time events. This is why the Civil War is not science. The Civil War is history. It's a one-time event. Now, I know we have reenactments, but nobody loses their life unless you're involved in the reenactment of the Custer battle out where I grew up. Those guys play for keeps. <laughs> and it's interesting. They have this big grandstand set up, and you're watching this reenactment out there, and there's smoke, you know, and everything. They make it look real. These guys are dressed up in authentic 7th Cavalry uniforms, and the Indians, you know, though this is their heyday for the year. The Crows, the Cheyennes, they get out there, and they're dressed in the traditional garb. And every once in a while, if you're looking through a binoculars, you can see one of these guys take a pot shot at one of the 7th Cavalry. You know, he's lying on the ground. He looks like he's dead. But, you know, they joke around a lot about it. But that's kind of what happens in that thing. Uh, anyway, history. So, what about the Bible is science? Well, I'm sure we can find some things in there that are genuinely science. But the creation, science or history? History. history, the flood, science or history? History, yes. So when a geologist challenges me, that look, the flood is not scientific. We've proven that it's not scientific. Okay, wait a minute. All right, let's change our paradigm here a little bit. Would you agree that the flood in the Bible as recorded claims to be history? Well, yeah, but it's stupid history. Okay, well, let's just look at the history. What about that history is incorrect? What about it has been proven to be false? You can't think of anything. Whether it happened or not, you still look at the history. I had a mom talk to me the other day. She looked at my uh, stuff and she goes, well, I just don't inv like involving the religious aspect in my kids' education. And I said, okay, that, let's just change. You've you got to change your paradigm. Don't look at the Bible as, because she wasn't there. She just wasn't there. Don't look at it as a religious textbook. Look at it as a history book. And it's amazing the change that shifted in her mind. Now she could approach this area a little bit differently. And it does make a difference. Philosophy. What's philosophy? It's the interpretation of evidence and events. Now, the methods are also different in these. Science involves the scientific method. It involves things that you can actually test and observe. So what part of the Big Bang is science? Can you observe it? Can you test it? Can you repeat it? It's not science. The Big Bang is History. history. At least it claims to be history. Now we've got to work on that aspect of it. So it's not subject to the scientific method. 
See, see what I'm talking about by being engaged with people on this level? We don't, we're not sitting there, you know, having our, I used to think that it, the more, you know, he who dies with the most evidence wins, you know, that kind of thing. Not a thing. I mean, I know more, after 40 years of doing this, do you think I don't know anything? I know tons of stuff, but it doesn't do any good. What I've got to do is reach the heart somewhere, and that's helping people to reconsider what it is they're actually putting their faith in. So science, history involves the forensic method. You work like a detective. So you see the Bible talking about the flood. Have you been able to work like a detective? What what around you? can serve as evidence that, uh, that is easily explained by what you read in Genesis. And philosophy involves interpretive methods. And here's where worldview really comes in. And most scientists do not think they have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview, and it may be sharply defined or it may be loosely defined. It's everything that shapes your thinking about the world around you. So these three words, if we can help our kids with this, I think will make them better able to wander around in the culture that's seeking to gobble them up. They don't, they, they, they're not able to know all of this evidence, and I think there's this, this, this kind of this uh, tendency to try to protect them from hearing all of this stuff. But no, they, these three words, if they know these three words and can keep them straight, and they hear statements... I've had a lot of kids come into my booth, and sometimes I'll try to trip them up because their mom says, oh, my kid's got this stuff down pat. And so I'll talk, talking to the kid about dinosaurs. And, and so we'll kind of drift away from the scripture a little bit, and finally it'll come out. Yeah, dinosaurs disappeared 65 million years ago, and the mom just looks at it and says, where did you hear that? And this is, you know, kids, are, they're doing some thinking. And the moms are kind of at a loss now. How do I teach them now? What books do I get? No, no, not the books. These three words. Teach your kid to hear every statement and analyze it in light of these three words. And it'll help them stay out of trouble. It'll also help them communicate. Now, let me just blow up a myth here right now. The conflict in the origins war is not one of religion versus science. We hear this all the time, and it's intimidating. The conflict in the origins war is one of religion versus religion. If, if uh, modern geology is not science, it is history and philosophy. So, therefore, it is a faith. It's a religion of some kind. Belief versus belief. The second thing I'd like to pass on to you is this one. We must know and trust the scriptural account. How many of you could recite Genesis 7-11 now? Could any of you do that? you know what Genesis 7-11 is? How many of you could recite Genesis or John 3.16? None of you? Greg, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on, raise your hands. I know Colorado people are a little more staid, you know. And I know our marijuana laws are a little more liberal than yours, but come on, really, okay? So raise your hands. Do you know John 3.16? Yeah. Well, well listen, Genesis 7.11 is perhaps the most crucial verse dealing with the history of the world, aside from the creation. It's all about the flood and what happened on the first day of the flood. And 
I think part of our difficulty in having the faith to counter some of the stuff out there is that we don't know our blooming scriptures. We don't know them. Most of the time, I think we spend looking in the scriptures for encouragement. Oh, God, just encourage me today. But I feel so down. I feel so low. Oh, there's a good verse. Okay, now I can go to work. And we don't really take the time. We're students of the scripture. I make a living, too. I've got to work, too. And so does my wife. And yet, we've got to carve out time to do this. Now, uh, this is knowing what I call the catechism of creation. By the way, here's another myth I want to blow out of the water. And that is this. There are two books of revelation uh, or truth, and that is science, nature, and the Bible. I don't, have you ever heard that? Two books of God's revelation? Actually, there's just one book of revelation. Specific things God has revealed to us, that's in the scriptures. Science cannot solve the issue of origins in the age of the earth. The, the creation doesn't yell back at you in the beginning God created the space and the earth. What it does do is it shows how complex it is. And that reminds us of a creator. That's what nature does. But it's not specific. It doesn't tell us how old the universe is. Not at all. So, But what happens when we think science can solve the issue? Well, here's this verse, Genesis, uh, Genesis, um, uh, Genesis 7-11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the sec- second month, the 17th day of the month, in the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. What do we do when we're sometimes challenged by scientists? We reinterpret the scriptures. That has happened ever since the 1800s. Well, there must be a huge gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. There's got to be, because science, scientists are, are right, aren't they? So we fit everything scientists are telling us into this one gap. Or, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, the word day is not specific. The word day can mean millions of years. Well, what happens if the scientific community suddenly adjusts things and say, actually, the word day is, means 10 million years or 50 million years? Now what? You see the position we're in? We start reinterpreting our scriptures because we're intimidated by this secret knowledge out here that only this group up here can know. Number three, we must be able to apply the catechism of creation. Some of us, I think, are doing a good job with each other and with our kids at knowing the catechism of creation, but we can't apply it. We get to, like the Rockies. How old are the Rockies? When did it happen? What happened when those mountains were born? Can you think of how the Bible might be able to explain all of that? Have you thought even about that? Anybody know the secular age of the Rockies? Actually, they're very, very young. About 70 million years or so. Now, oh boy, that's ancient. Well, in light of a 4.6 billion year old earth, that's pretty young. Guess what? The Bible agrees with that. Did you know that? Because the Bible teaches us at the end of the flood, the mountains rose. So we would say the mountains are approximately 4,500 years old. <laughs> what a loony! <laughs> but you see, I can, I can demonstrate that from the scriptures. Being able to formulate a history of the rocks and the landforms based on the catechism of the scripture, that's what I'm talking about. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible's not a, hist- or it's not a, a science textbook. Well, that's true. I would agree with that. It is a book of history. 
And so we got the edge on the scientists. What's their limitation? They can't observe, right? They can't test it and they can't repeat it. So really, science ought to be silence when it comes to the origin of the earth. And we ought to pick up our books, get out of the science room and go down here to the history room and now have our discussion. Now... You and I are on the same plane. Now the doctrine of geology and I are on the same plane. Now the doctrine of physics and I are on the same plane. You see that? You're in my territory now. (laughs) So let me give you a basic biblical historical framework. And you can copy this if you want. uh, But here here it is, okay? What we're looking at is about 6,000 years of earth history. We start with the creation, which was a literal six-day period brought about by God's word. This solves the whole dilemma of the starlight and time dilemma. Have you ever heard that one? No, this is it. God was involved from day one, and every single verse in chapter one of Genesis has God's involvement in it. God said, God did this. God said, there, let there be, and there was. We're not talking about a naturalistic universe. We're talking about a supernaturalistic universe. This was the big stumbling block for the deists in the 1800s. They couldn't get over miracles. And so science today rejects all miracles. If it's a miracle, it's not science. Well, that may be true. You can't repeat it. Can you repeat Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine? My brothers tried it in high school. (laughs) And they had to use a few more ingredients to make it work. (laughs) Yeah, no, those aren't scientific things. But then science says, oh, I can't say anything, it's out, of my, it's out of my territory. So we go on to history and we talk about it. Then you have the pre-flood period. This is a period lasting about 1,600 years. Now how can I throw around all these numbers? Why can I do that? Do I just know more than you? How could I do that? If you go into Genesis, those first 11 chapters, did you know there's an exact genealogy and chronology given? for the age of the earth. Now you have to work a little harder and put it together and do some math and so on. Dads, I know that's not a favorite subject of yours, but this could be something you do this afternoon instead of taking that nap you've always wanted. (laughs) Kids, you can go for Father's Day. Let me take a nap. Don't bother me. Don't bug me. Leave me alone. No, you can say, kids, we're going to do something fun today. We're going to go on a time machine. You want to go on a time machine? We're going to go back in history. And uh, you start working with the names and the numbers. It's a lot of fun. Then you have this period that happened right after the pre-flood period (laughs) called the flood period. It's divided into two sections. The filling stage lasting about 150 days and then the recessional stage where the waters came off of the earth. So the period was uh, about a year. And uh, now during that year is a global catastrophic period uh, in which most of the sedimentary features of the earth were laid down rapidly. That's the key. Big and fast and in the recent past, we say. Then you have the last 4,500 years, which we call the post-flood period. This is the result of the global flood of Genesis, including volcanism, 
Do you ever think about that? Geologists tell us the earth began in a ball of molten lava and gases and over billions of years it worked itself out. And your great, 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 grandfather was one of those little cyanobacteria you see swimming around in Yellowstone. That's what they teach. But if if Genesis is correct, the earth didn't begin in a bowl of molten lava, it began in water. Peter tells us that. Volcanism was as a result of the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep. You see how our 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 template here for earth history is beginning to channel us a little bit differently. Climate change. I believe in climate change. Not just because I'm from Washington. I believe in climate change. Now, do I believe in global warming? No, because no one can control the climate. The climate is what it is. God is the one who controls everything. But the climate changes that we have going on today, I believe, are as a direct result of what the flood did to our once beautiful planet. And, of course, localized catastrophes. Do you ever think about earthquakes? How could earthquakes be very good? Earthquakes are a part of a very weakened earth brought about by the flood. Now, here's the question. Can we take this historical framework... Remember, it's not a science framework, is it? It's a historical framework. And can we interpret things like this? Secular geologists tell us it's 660,000 years old. If that's true, your Bible can't be true. That's just the long and the short of it. But how does our biblical framework share it, uh, to say about it? If it occurred during creation, it wouldn't even be here because the flood would have wiped it away. It must have happened as a direct result of the flood. Can we explain this? How did this happen? If that was a product of creation, the flood would have washed it away. How about these? You 14ers, you. (laughs) You're the ones I really expect the brilliance of geology from. (laughs) Unless you're just climbing that thing to prove your manhood. (laughs) Climb that thing and ask yourself on the way up, how did this happen? And are these mountains really all that old? Both the catechism, uh, well, we must be able to know both the catechism of earth history and the application of the catechism. Now, uh, Greg said, that's enough. So uh, what I'm going to do is stop here. There's one other question I'd like you to think about, though, and we won't tackle it right here. But if you want to out in the hall, I'd be glad to discuss it with you. And that is, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, wait a minute. Hasn't radiometric dating proven that the Earth is old? Aha! Now, this is, a, this is a good one here. And we've got to understand it. Because if you don't, it can be like the Achilles heel of Christianity. But there are some very interesting things. If you just look at your biblical framework, you can have some good questions to ask about this whole process. So let me just leave it right there, okay? And uh, hope you enjoy your day today. Happy Father's Day to you all. Uh, And I know that those of you who uh, don't have kids, I know that you may be a father somewhere. And of course, I mean spiritual kids, okay? (laughs) 
but, uh, but you're a father nevertheless. Somewhere along the line here. <laughs> and wish you a happy Father's Day. And uh, if you get a chance, you can take a look at the books I've written out there. Uh, you're under no compulsion to buy these things. They're, they're out there. i just like you to see what I'm involved in and um, give some hope to you for how to combat these changes in culture. So have a great day today. And let's close here in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the power of it. And we ask you, God, to help us be masters of these words and to help us uh, have confidence in your words so that we can offer a good defense in this changing culture. Amen.